very much appreciate those songs tonight as they fit beautifully into the lesson that we will be talking about a gracious God who intercedes for transgressions. That's what we'll be looking at tonight. You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, that'll be our text for this evening. Now, Exodus 33 is perhaps a text we may not know very well. We often may know the chapter before it. If you grew up on the pews, you've heard of the golden calf incident. That's in Exodus 32, where you have Moses on the mountain, and he is receiving the law. He receives the the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, And meanwhile, down at the base of the mountain, we see the people of Israel full-fledged into idolatry, golden calf, sexual immorality, all kinds of things going on. God tells Moses, you need to go down there because they've broken loose. Moses goes down and finds that to be the case. He shatters those two tablets of stone, emblematic of the people already breaking the covenant with God. We barely got the covenant, and now the people have already broken the covenant. You might even remember Moses melting down that golden calf, making them drink from it. There you go. Delicious. Got your minerals right involved in that. Uh, Trying to indicate to the people the severity of the sin that they committed. We sometimes end the story there in Exodus 32 and think, okay, they drank the water mixed with the dust of the golden calf, and therefore... All is well and good, and let's get on back to the promised land, and let's make our way. That's absolutely not the case. I want you to notice how Exodus 33 begins. I told you on Sunday morning these chapter breaks are atrocious often, and here's another one of those. Chapter 33, verse 1. Moses, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, for if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Alright, let's set the scene of what's going on here. And it's so important to notice, so now after the golden calf incident, we have then God saying to, to Moses, okay, go ahead and lead the people up. Go ahead and go on and you will lead them into the promised land. You'll notice the description of it in, in verse 1 that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 2, I'm going to drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You're going to go up, verse 3, to the land flowing with milk and honey. But notice what God says there when He says, but I'm not going to go with you. 
Okay, the promises are still intact. You go ahead and go take that land. You go ahead and enter and I'll send an angel in front of you to wipe out your enemies and you go enjoy that promised land. But let me tell you something, I'm not going. I want you to think about that idea for a minute. And I would like for you to consider the response of what you see in the people as well as what God is doing in saying this. First, I would like for you to consider that this is actually a merciful aspect of God. Because the reason God says, I can't go with you, is because I'm going to consume you. Uh, You are a stubborn people. You are a stiff-necked people. Uh, You can imagine the, the, the truth of that. Moses had been gone a large sum of 40 days. And the people are already basically telling Aaron with great derision, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. So make for us gods that we can follow and we'll go back and then you lead us from now on. And that's how, how little they thought of Moses. Forty days. And the people have already reverted into full-blown idolatry and immorality. And now God says, all right. I've made my promises, go on up, but I am certainly not going to go with you. The severity of what God is saying here cannot be understated. If we went back into Exodus and we went back to chapter 25, you might remember that the whole essence of what God wants to do is dwell in the midst of His people. If you remember chapter 25 of Exodus, is God saying to the people, I want to dwell with you, so anyone who has a free will offering, give it, and we're going to use it to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the way for God to be in the midst of the people. God wants to be with them. And now at this moment, God says, that's not going to happen. I am not going to be in your midst. I am not going to go up with you. Essentially, the project is canceled. I'm going to consume you if I'm in your midst. I cannot be with you at all. And that's why you see the people in their response. And I want you to think about that response that they offer for a moment. Because it says when they heard this, it's the opposite of the good news. It's disastrous. It is bad news. God not with His people is the bad news. God with His people is good news. God says, I can't be with you. And so I'm not going to go up with you in that. Now imagine if God had said that to us. That God said, you know what? You can go ahead and have all the promises, but I'm not going to be with you. I find the response of the people fascinating and intriguing. Because you'll notice their response is not, well, hey, we get to go to the promised land anyway, so that's okay. Let's go on to the promised land. He said that he's going to drive out the enemies and we're going to enjoy the land flowed with milk and honey. Notice there's no rejoicing that they are completely crushed and devastated by this news. Why? Because God with His people is supposed to be everything. It's not about receiving the blessings from God. It's about being with God. And that's what's being highlighted here. 
the people understand. They don't sit there back and go, well, as long as we get all those promises anyway, and He'll lead us safely there and drive out the enemies, and we'll have the land, and we'll have all the inhabitants all driven out of there, and we'll build our houses, and it'll all be great, so it's okay. The blessings of God are nothing without having the presence of God. A way to illustrate that is essentially... What defines a good marriage is not that you're in the marriage for all the things that you get out of it, but because of the person you're with. See, that's the idea with God. You're not supposed to be in this relationship because of all the things you think you're going to get out of the relationship. The point is that you want to be with God. And you might recall that later on it'll talk about how God would wish that the people would always have a heart like they did at Horeb. And it's sometimes hard to look back at the history of Israel and figure out, well, where exactly was that heart? What what heart are you talking about that they possessed? But I think it may be this right here. Right here, there is a great awareness that it doesn't matter that we get the blessings. It doesn't matter that the promises are still intact. The problem is if we have absolutely nothing, if we do not have God. God in our midst is everything that we are hoping for. And you will notice the beauty of their response in verse 4. They mourned. No one puts on ornaments. And you see them stripping those ornaments. And from this moment on, they never put them on again. They are in such deep mourning. They are cut to the heart by the news that they are separated from God and that God will not be in their midst. To help us understand even further the seriousness of this and the significance of it, let's look at verses 7-11 through because this is going to describe what exactly is being lost by God saying, I'm not going to go with you. Verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Far off from the camp, that, far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Notice you get a picture now of what God is saying, I'm subtracting. Here's what it used to be. It used to be that when we needed to have a word from God, Moses would set up this tent and he would go to the tent and the pillar of the cloud of God would come down over the entrance of that tent and all of Israel would stand at the front of their tents in worship while Moses spoke to God face to face. How amazing is that? All the people are just standing at attention, just there in worship because God has come down. 
And God is talking to Moses and Moses is talking back and there's this whole conversation going on and they are all in attention at that moment. And God just said, I'm not doing it. Can't go with you. Cannot be in your midst. Can't do this any longer. Go on and have the promises, but I will not be able to be with you anymore. And so what you're seeing then are these pictures of what was lost, what could have been. And the depth of the description cannot be lost on us when you see that Moses spoke with God like a friend would speak to a friend. I don't know that you get that from anywhere else of anybody in the Scriptures of the kind of conversation that Moses and God were able to have. And you need to have that because of the conversation we're about to read. That there was such an intimacy between Moses and God. Such an intimate relationship that exists that they were able to go back and forth and just talk about all of these things. And that's what's going to lead into this really important discussion that Moses and God are going to have. Because God has decreed, I'm not going with the people. You go ahead and go on without me. I'll give you the land, but I will not be with you. Now watch how this all unfolds. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. If therefore I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So notice how the first discussion unfolds. God says, I'm not going to go with you. And so Moses now steps in and he now starts asking. And he says, I cannot leave this people by myself. How are you telling me to go on and lead the people to the promised land if you're not going to go with me? How is that possibly going to work? He even states that a little bit further by saying, I'm in need of your presence. You need to be with us. How is this going to even be possible? How am I going to even know your ways? You can imagine, here we are in the wilderness. We're at the out Mount Sinai at this point. We haven't even left yet. And you're saying, go on to the promised land. Well, I need you with us, and I need to know your ways. I need to know your judgments. I need to know your directions and guidance. How am I supposed to lead this people and direct them in the ways of the Lord if you're not with us? How is it going to work? So you notice where Moses is standing in this as he's expressing this before God. I need to know you. And I need to know your ways. And I have to have you with me. It's not good enough to just say, go on to the promised land. We need you with us. Did you notice God's response? God says, I will go with you. And that's singular. I'll go with you, Moses. And I will give you, Moses, rest. Now, I'd like for you to think about that for a moment. If God said that to you, what would be your response? 
That's right. I'd be like, all right, we're good. Awesome. Got my answer. At least God's with me. You know, I'm not like these guys who are making all these mistakes and sinning like that. At least God's going to go with me, right? That's what you think would happen. All right, look at the next verse. Verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Just let me stop there and just point out. He says, I, I, I have to have you with me. You notice there's some doubt on his end, and I think understandably so. God cannot be with these people. Moses understands that. They are a sinful, wicked, stubborn, stiff-necked people. He's fully aware of that. And so we say, now, don't send us on if you're not going to be with us. So that's where he starts. Don't, don't even say go if you're not going to be there. Then can he continues, verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Notice that Moses basically now intercedes on behalf of the people. Moses does not say, great. Glad you're going to be with me. Let's do this. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, you're with me. But you have to be with us. You have to be with all of us. That's what makes us your people. Is that you are with us. That's what defines who we are. And so that's what he's doing is he is pleading for the people. Even though he is accepted by God. Even though God says I know you and you are well favored in my sight. He uses that favor to go before God and say. Well if that's how you feel about me then let's impart that upon the people. They're your people. And you then must go with them and not just simply with me. You have to just love the heart of Moses right here. He is not thinking about self in the slightest. He has no concern about himself. It is all about these people that he is representing before God. That's what he cares about. And notice that he says, how are we going to know if we have found favor in your sight, if we're doing what's pleasing to you, if you're not with us? How could we possibly know? You have to be with us on this journey. We need to see that you are there. And then perhaps one of my favorite pictures that he gives in that, at the end of verse 16 when he says, isn't that what makes us distinct? What a beautiful picture of identity of the people of God. You know what makes the people of God different is you have the presence of God with you. And he says, if you send us on and you're not with us, how are we different from anybody else in the world? What makes us us, what makes us distinct, is that you go with us. That you follow along with us. Now notice what God says to that in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken... I will do. Now watch why. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Why is God going to go with the people? Because the people are so great and righteous and good? Nope, they're a stiff-necked stubborn people. 
What is the only reason that God says He can go ahead and dwell in the midst of the people? Well, because He says there in verse 17, because Moses has found favor in the sight of God. Moses will be the intercessor. Moses is the basis by which God says, because of Him, because I know Him by name, because of this relationship that we possess, I can go ahead and go with you. And I think that's such a beautiful message that's being given here. It's a big picture of what you are seeing God give as a foreshadowing template of the means of salvation. The answer of what God gives is we need somebody who can go before God, intercede on our behalf, and go with His people, not because the people are righteous or good or holy or have any merits, but because there is one who is known by name and has found favor in the sight of God. That's what we need. We need a beloved son. We need somebody whom God looks down with favor and says, I accept Him. I can't accept anybody else. Everybody else is worthy of judgment. Everybody else is worthy of doom. But Moses stands in and says, alright, I will plead on behalf of the people. And you see that picture in Christ. One who stands on behalf of the people because he is the favored, beloved son. Watch what Moses now does next, because this is now, I think, often a misunderstood section, but it is so powerful and so important to understanding what God is trying to communicate to to Moses, to the people of Israel, and to us. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Now, the context of this is important. Is Moses now suddenly going into right field here? And said, boy, I'd sure like to see you. (laughs) We're having this whole back and forth. And the whole back and forth is about, is the Lord going to go with His people to the promised land? That's what the whole discussion is about. It seems highly out of place for the Moses to go, okay, can I see you now? (laughs) This doesn't very well fit what we're doing. I submit to you that what Moses is ultimately asking for is proof that God is going to go all the way with them. This is what you see his first response every single time. You can't say go if you're not going to go. You said that if you went, you're going to consume everybody on the way. And now you're saying you will go, but I need to know that you're going to go and not leave. Or consume us along the way like we deserve. This is what the whole back and forth has been about. Is okay, you said you're not going to go. You have to go. God says, okay, I'll go with you. No, no, you can't just go with me. You need to go with us. Okay, God says, I will go with all of you. Okay, you're going to go with all of us? Don't send us if you're not going to go with all of us. Now I would like for you essentially in our terminology, put that in writing. Show me your glory that this is exactly what you're going to do. That you are going to lead us all the way. And I think it's important to see that because the asking to see the glory of God is not an unusual event in the book of Exodus. Other times we see in the book of Exodus that God comes down and shows His glory 
on a couple of monumental occasions. Uh, One of the times you see that is in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 10, where there is that time of crisis where the people lack food. And here they are, what are we going to do about food? And it says, the glory of the Lord came down in the midst of the people. It's like this decisive moment, like boom, here I am. You're going to be fed, trust me. It's like sealing the deal. The same thing happens a little bit later in chapter 24 when the covenant is ratified and the glory of the Lord comes down again. I would also like for you to see that if you just jump ahead a little bit into chapter 34 and verse 5, notice here's when it actually happens. 34 verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. It's this visible pillar of cloud. Show me your glory so that I know you're going to go with us because what God had said is, I'm not going to be here anymore. And the picture of what that looked like was told to us in verses 7 through 11. When God was with His people, what happened? Moses set up a tent and the pillar, the glory of the Lord came down. And Moses is simply saying, if you're going to go with us, Let's see you here. Do this. And you have to love then what God does. Because rather than just simply saying, just let me see the pillar, show this demonstration, God gives Moses way more than he asked for. Verse 19, God says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Essentially, God says, I will do more than what you're asking for. I'm going to give you a whole lot more. And notice exactly what God says that he's going to give. You notice he says there, what I'm going to do, verse 19, is I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. I'm going to proclaim before you my name. Now, you see him do this again in chapter 34 in verse 6 where it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. Here is the declaration of the, of the name of the Lord. But God is going to give him something amazing. I'm going to show you and reveal my name. Now, that sounds weird to us. We don't talk like that. But when you speak of the name of somebody, that is a, a picture of the person's character. And you see that really come out in what he does. Notice in verse 19 of chapter 33, he said, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my, before you my name, the Lord. And notice how that's then described. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I want you to think about what God says there at that moment. 
God says, what I'm going to do to prove that I'm going to be with you, to prove to you that I'm not going to consume you along the way, that I will go with you all the way to the promised land, not only you, but also the people of Israel, is I'm going to reveal my name. And here's my name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now, how that sentence has been traditionally interpreted would not be a very confident statement. Because if what God is saying is, well, I choose who and whenever I want to be merciful, how is that very comforting to Moses who is concerned in this whole back and forth that God is not going to go all the way to the promised land with him. So here's Moses, you have to go with us. And, and so God says, I'll go with you, Moses. Moses goes, no, no, not just me, all of us. Okay, I will go with all of you. Okay, prove that, show me your glory. Okay, here's my glory. I show mercy whenever I feel like it. That doesn't help. <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't provoke any, provide any confidence whatsoever if it's a capriciousness or a freedom on God's part where He says, well, you know, whenever I feel like it, I will be gracious. Then I kind of willy-nilly pick and choose whoever I want to be gracious and whoever I want to show mercy. That would completely undermine everything this whole discussion is about in trying to give Moses confidence to know that God is going to go with them. Rather than understanding the text this way, that we need to understand what he's saying is, when I say I will be compassionate, then that means I'm going to be compassionate. When I say I will be gracious, then that means I'm going to be gracious. And when I say I'm going to be merciful, then that means I'm going to be merciful. It is absolutely not a capriciousness of who knows if God will be merciful or not. It is quite the opposite. God said, here's my character. What is it? When I say I'm merciful, I'm merciful. And when I say I'm gracious, I'm gracious. And if I say I'm going, I'm going. And if I say I will not consume you, I will not consume you. And friends, that's what, how chapter 34, verse 6 is absolutely pointed out. How has God described Himself? He describes Himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's, he's exemplifying this and expressing it to the people and saying, if I have chosen for you to receive favor, then you will absolutely receive favor. And here is God saying, I am going to show mercy and grace to Israel just as Moses has been interceding and asking for. This statement then is absolutely everything because what God is saying is, I am going to be faithful to Moses and I will be faithful to Israel even though they ought to be consumed along the way. I'm going to still be faithful. I'm still going to show mercy. I'm still going to show compassion. Now if I could keep you to 8.30, but don't worry, I won't. I'll give you this quick little side study for yourself. Now, import that into Romans 9, where Paul quotes this. 
where Paul is quoting this very idea, where has the word of God failed toward Israel? No, the God's promises have come about and that God has promised to bless through the offspring of Abraham, that it does not depend upon human works. And this is showing God's purpose of election. If God says he is going to have a people, then he is going to have a people. And if God is going to be merciful, then he's going to be merciful. If he's going to be gracious, then he is going to be gracious. And the whole point that Paul is making here is that it's not going to be on the basis of being righteous or good or belonging to as physical Israel, but it's because that's who God is. That is his character. His character is, I will be merciful to these people. And thus he will conclude in chapter 9 by saying, does that mean God is unjust? Not in the slightest. That's where Romans 9 is going. I told you you don't have time for that, that, but I won't. Boy, Romans 9 gets messed up. And you need to see what that meant in its original context because that changes everything about Romans 9. It is not a capriciousness of saying salvation comes and who knows how it comes and God picks some and not others and who knows why He does that. It is quite the opposite. Paul is standing on the fact that it is by God's determination that when he says these are the people who are going to receive mercy, then they are the people who are going to receive mercy. And if God says these people are going to receive my grace, then they're going to receive my grace. There is an absolute certainty that is undergirding that quotation. And that's what Moses is getting at. Now let's talk about us as we wrap up our final few minutes. How can we know that God is going to be with us And be merciful to us in the face of all our sins. Who doesn't feel the weight of that? The more you come to know God, the more you come to understand the holiness of God. See how high and mighty and majestic He is. A God who cannot dwell with sin. In whom there is no darkness at all. We cannot stand to be around abominations or defilement. Here we are, a defiled people. And you feel the weight and the burden of sins and you ask yourself, how can it be possible that God can be merciful to us? And the message of Exodus 33 and the message of Romans 9 is so valuable and so important. The reason God can be merciful is because that's His character. Because that's who He is. I'm afraid so often we might have grown up with a, a, a skewed view of God that forgets that when God declares Himself here as a representation and expression to Israel, who is the Lord? God says, here's what I want you to tell them. I'm a gracious and merciful God. I have bound and steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. And I'm gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And the whole point is that the mercy of God is not going to depend upon 
our great righteousness that we could possibly exert or some kind of goodness on our part, but it's going to depend upon the very character of God. That's the hope that's given to us. Because as soon as I start looking at my life, what do I see? I'm unworthy. I sin today, just like yesterday. And we would hope that we would grow in holiness and change in conduct, and yet we never are going to attain perfection. And so how can we have any certainty whatsoever that we're going to be saved? How can we know that we're going to receive mercy? How are we going to know that it's going to be okay on the day of judgment? How can we have any confidence on our deathbed for the life that we lived and we look back at our past and you could probably look back at it and go, I think there's more sins than righteousness if I added it all up. Because our forgiveness depends upon the purpose of God. Because that's the very character of God. If God says, these are the people that will be forgiven, then they will be forgiven. If God says, these are the people who receive mercy, then these are the people who receive mercy. If God says, these are the people that He will be gracious to, then these are the people that He will be gracious to. You know, the Apostle Paul basically echoed that very message in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse, verse 8. Listen to the beauty of how Paul says something that seems very ironic in how he ends it. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, As I preach in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him... We will live with Him. You see the certainty that is being set up. If we die with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, which we've talked about Sunday morning, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, now if we reject Him, if you just flat out go, no, This God thing is not for me. Not going to do it. Not going to die to Him. Not going to live for Him. You will deny us. But watch verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. This is the essence of the character of God. God says, we're going to falter. And God's faithfulness is absolutely our greatest hope. God remains faithful to His Word, faithful to His promises, even when we are faithless. Think about what just happened. The people here are worthy of condemnation. They're worshiping idols. 
They are worthy of God just absolutely striking them dead. How many times has God expressed that to Moses? Essentially, move aside and I'm going to start a new people out of you. (laughs) Over and over again. And what do you see Moses doing over and over in this? What's God trying to teach Israel? You need an intercessor. You need somebody to be the go-between. You need a mediator. And Moses beautifully fulfills that role over and over again. And because of Moses, and because of the very character and nature of God, God says, okay, they will be my people and I will continue and I will go on with them. This is the whole picture of why Israel is receiving mercy. Israel receives mercy again and again because God is faithful. Because God keeps His Word. Because God keeps His promises. And because they have Moses standing there on the the basis of His favor to be able to make intercession for the transgressors. And ultimately, what chapter 33 is saying to Moses, as Moses is concerned and asking God, you have to go with us. Prove that you're going to go with us. You have to stay with us. You cannot leave us. And God's final answer to why God will remain with His people and be faithful to them is because He will be merciful to those to whom He said He will be merciful to. That God's Word is so strong that He says if these people are said to receive mercy, that's exactly what's going to happen. Let's bring that into the New Testament and the picture for us because the same truth is here for us. That our greatest hope is in the faithfulness of God. Friends, why are we going to receive mercy even though we fall short? Now you think about on the day of judgment, what exactly are we going to be able to point to? And say, well, but I was a really good person. I went to church every Sunday. I did good deeds from time to time. What are we going to stand on? That was the problem that Israel had. And it's the same problem for us. What exactly are we going to stand on? The thing that we are allowed to stand on is the truth that God is faithful. And what has He asked for His people to be and do? Let us be grateful that God has not said the only way for me to dwell in your presence and for me to be with you and for you to join eternity with me is by keeping the law perfectly. There's every right to do that. One of the beauties of the Old Testament is to teach the world that that will not work depending upon ourselves, trying to do everything that God says, we fail again and again and again. So what does God want? Did you notice it at the very beginning of chapter 33 that we studied? What was the response of the people? 
when God said, I'm not going to go with you. They were a people that were broken by what they had done. They were a people that were cut to the heart and realized the severity of what their sins had done in their relationship to the Holy God. They realized without God, they are nothing. It didn't matter what blessings they had. It didn't matter what hopes that they had. Without the presence of God, all hope was lost. And for this one moment, you see in the heart of Israel an intensity that realized we need God and we need Him. In fact, the end of chapter 32, what kicks off chapter 33, is Moses telling the people, you have done a grievous sin and I'm going to go talk to God on your behalf. Basically, I need to go up there and and, and salvage the situation because your sins are so great. And I'm going to go speak before God about these things and the people are broken by that. That is the heart that God wants. This is the heart that we talked about last night. This is the heart of the Jairus. This is the heart of of the sinful woman in Luke. This is the heart of the woman with the flow of blood. People broken by their sins and humbly coming before God and saying, I have absolutely nothing to offer you. And I need your forgiveness. And did you see what made it possible for God to go with these people? They can be broken by sins all they want to, but guess what? There was one thing still lacking in the picture that they needed. They needed a Moses. They needed someone to intercede on behalf of the people. What God is doing in Exodus 33 is depicting the picture of our redemption. Here is a holy God who decrees we are all worthy of judgment and we ought to be consumed and God cannot be with us. And He wants a heart of people who are recognizing that condition that are so broken by their sins that they pour out their hearts before God but recognize even with a poverty of spirit there is still something lacking. There needs to be an intercessor to stand between us and God, to plead our case on our behalf. And God's response is to those who are contrite in heart and broken in spirit and will put their faith in that intercessor, Jesus. God says, to those I will have mercy. That's why we know we have forgiveness of sins. That's how we can have confidence. Is if we're coming to Jesus with a broken and contrite heart, poor in spirit, and we see the cross of Jesus, the intercessor who pleads on our behalf for us, God's response to that is, I will be faithful to my covenant. I will be faithful to you. It is so stunning that God then can turn around and say, I will be with his, my people. You know, the beauty of the arrival of Jesus is one of the titles that is given to him. Is 
Emmanuel, God is with us. God was in the midst of His people because that's what He's always wanted. The tabernacle was a picture of that. The temple was a picture of that. And Isaiah prophesied stunningly beautiful words. Jesus did not come and make intercession for the righteous. He made intercession for the transgressors. He stood before God and said, I die on their behalf. And John 1 comes along and says, we've seen the glory of God. Moses says, show me your glory so that I know. We know. Because we've seen the glory of God on display in the face of Jesus. And the cross is the ultimate hope that God has said, I will show mercy to whom I've said I show mercy. You come to Jesus and you come to Him empty-handed and you come to Him and you express your sins and you tell the Lord, and I have nothing that I bring but except a heart that is crushed by sin. And I know that I need rescue and I need saving. God has a response to that. I am a gracious and merciful God. Showing abundant compassion and pardon for giving sin. And may we never lose sight of the severity of what our sins do to the relationship between us and God. How much we need to be broken by every single sin we commit that we always come back to God on our knees, broken by our sins. With full assurance that we have rescue, that God will be merciful. Because Jesus is the one who stands before God as the one well favored. Died for our sins. Beautiful imagery from Moses, all displayed in the life of Christ for us. If you're interested in being a follower of Jesus this evening, it is amazing the simplicity of what God has said. If you'll love the Lord your God with all of your heart, if you will depend upon Him. You'll turn away from living for self in this life of sin and realize what God has done to rescue you from the doom that comes from living the way that we live our lives. If you would turn away from that life, confess the Lord Jesus to be the Son of God and your Savior who's come to die for your sins. Have your sins washed away by being immersed in water. And enter a relationship of being a child of God with this wonderful knowledge that God has said, you're my children, and I'm going to show mercy to you. And you be faithful to me. Won't you come and do that now? Won't you come forward and do that while we stand and while we sing?